Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L-O-U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm D. Chupar. Hey there, folks, this is Don Flynn of the American Songster, slapping the dap with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening, blues people? Yet again, another great episode of Jack Dapple Blues Podcast. As you know, in celebrating and and raising cultural awareness of African American traditional music and the Black experience, we always promote education. We always promote African American literature or literature of all kinds, for that matter, and. We also have a project, and you can go back and check the archives, the blues of the educational system as it pertains to black and brown children. Today, we're not speaking about the teacher of children, young folk, but not children, young adults, because I'm speaking with, can I call you professor or not yet? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm professor. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Professor yeah. Tyler D. Parriott at UNLV for African American Studies. He has some great projects that we're going to discuss that actually, like our platform, ties all these things together from the vernaculars, the traditions, history, societal evolution, and things of these natures that also changes the trajectory of the traditions. But before we get into his projects, let's talk about him and his journey to African-American studies, being a professor of it. How's it going, Tyler? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm always excited to talk shop when it comes to this, so I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate the invitation. It's an honor, for sure. Oh, we, do, we have to take a moment, because I don't know if the, the audience understood. I said UNLV. That name should that that should get a lot of you excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if anyone has any recollection of maybe the past two and a half to yeah, I guess three decades at this point, UNLV was was on the map nationally and internationally as a, a college basketball team, which I think is rare. I mean, even even by today's standards, but it is uh, one of memory for many people in the Las Vegas Valley. And even when I travel and I tell people I, you know, I'm from Las Vegas, went to school at UNLV and now teach at UNLV. One of the first things they usually <laughs> tell me is how much they loved that UNLV, UNLV team in the late 80s. <laughs> Jerry Tarkanian. And, you know, now with the documentary about it that came out a few years ago, uh, the memory has lasted uh, very, very long. So. <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> Use a hero locally over here. Absolutely. Considering Las Vegas, when you think of Las Vegas, you either think of mobster movies or what happens <laughs> in Vegas stays in Vegas. Right. Yeah. But the one yeah. thing that trumps all of that is those running rebels. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially the context of that era. I mean, me growing up here, I've seen the city change drastically. Um, and, you know, back then it wasn't a major place. It was a, it was a tourism hub. A lot of people came here for various reasons, but it was still very much a developing town and, and a city. And, but that basketball team really put Vegas on the map. 
uh, for something besides just tourism and gaming. So it, it was one of the first kind of dimensions that set the city apart from what its typical reputation is. So, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's always interesting. That's the first thing that comes up. All right. Well, you know what? Let me stop because I was about to ask you another question in pertaining to that, but then we'll be on a, a, a whole different trajectory. <laughs> yeah. That could be another podcast. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so, so what, what, what inspired you? to want to be a historian and, and teacher and researcher of African-American studies. Because that's very specific. Yeah. Not to mention, and I'm, I have to say this because there's a lot of, um, quote unquote, I don't like to use the term black leaders. I'll say uh, representatives of, of the African-American community that are educators by paper or meaning they have degrees or educators by YouTube. And as of late, I would say the last three or so years, they say uh, getting a degree, Dr. Umar is one, getting a degree in African-American studies isn't conducive to um, um, uh, a black progression, which I don't agree with. So, so right. considering this is the terrain now, maybe not in the majority, but it's been mentioned by a lot. What inspired you to take this route? Well, yeah. So, I mean, all of those are, are great comments and questions. And you know, I think entire podcasts could, could be done on those as well. I agree. But uh, I think, I think um, personally for me, you know, I grew up in the Las Vegas Valley. I went through the public educational system here and, you know, it's never been ranked particularly highly. And even recollecting my education in, in Las Vegas and my history classes, I think the, the basis of the education that I got in school about African-American history or the African diaspora more broadly was the basic narrative of slavery, a little bit about abolition, uh, maybe Harriet Tubman, a little Frederick Douglass, if, if even that. And then um, civil rights movement, Martin Luther King. That's the only the only person you really heard about alongside maybe Rosa Parks. And I, I really was indifferent to the study of history throughout most of my life until I got to the university and I randomly took a class called comparative slavery. Mm. I had no idea who the professor was. Um, I found out later that he had just joined the faculty. He was a new hire. And honestly, I was working throughout throughout my college years um, around 40 hours a week at a casino. And so I had to select my classes based upon what worked within my work schedule. And that one happened to fit. So. I had no idea what I was in for, mm. but his, so the professor's name was Dr. Kevin Dawson, who is still a great friend of mine. And he writes excellent work on the maritime history of slavery. But um, the way that he presented the material from an African perspective and from the perspective of viewing enslaved people as diasporic Africans who had personalities who had goals, who had certain interests, who had certain skills. It was the first time that I think I had been introduced to the concept that you can understand the enslaved population as people 
Mm. who were working through their circumstances and using frameworks of resistance to survive the system. And resistance wasn't just, you know, starting an armed revolt. It was doing various things like slowing down your work intentionally, running away for a period of time, or in, in the case of what he was teaching us, even using boats and swimming techniques wow. <laughs> to escape slavery. And so I, I was just infatuated with the material. Um, it, it was the first time I had been introduced to this idea of Atlantic slavery outside the cotton South. Um, I, because we tend to have a kind of a parochial framework in the United States regarding education on slavery. So we don't really learn much about other slave societies. Um, and if we do, it's, it's very, very marginal to the curriculum. So it was at that point where it just sparked something in me. I, I completed all of the assignments. I think it was one of the, you know, the few classes I read every single word <laughs> on, the, on the homework. And I bothered him incessantly in his office, just asking him all of these questions because I was also interested in what he did. I guess I didn't even really know what a professor was. To some degree, I was, I think I went in really naively thinking that college professors are just advanced K through 12 teachers. I didn't know know what it meant to go to graduate school. I didn't know what it really took to get a PhD. I, I I was a very naive college student, but you know, he, he was really patient with me. He, he really took me under his wing. And based upon the work that I was submitting, he said, this is something you could do if you wanted to. And I said, well, wh- what do you have to do? Right, <laughs> like, right. How do, you, how, do you, how do you start teaching full time at a university? What, is, what does it mean to even call yourself doctor at this point? So, I mean, long story short, I owe everything to a representation of slavery that completely just blew my mind and introduced a new way of understanding it. And it has everything to do with the way the material was presented to me. And at that point, I was just, um, it was infectious. I couldn't Mm. get enough of it. And so he helped me write my letters to graduate school, and I ended up going to the University of South Carolina, uh, working with a great scholar named Dan Littlefield, who who wrote some of the best books on black people in the American colonies. And, you know, at that point, it's a wrap. And five years later, I get the Ph.D. and, and start my academic career. But it was basically that initial spark in that comparative slavery class that that really got me going. I can imagine, because to your point, what, what gets convoluted in majority of slavery courses, which I, I don't really want to word it that way, but that's pretty much what it is, is that the Atlantic slave trade and the domestic slave trade are two different yeah. slavery existence existences, and they were actually operated and functioned in in two different capacities but it was it, it, that at least i know for my short schooling that was never the conversation whatsoever that was something i found on my own sure yeah and i think we and this is one thing i'm, I'm very conscious of when i step into the classroom now is that i, I want to make sure that students understand that there are there are connections here you know and i think even when people use the term triangle trade, when they're talking about the Middle Passage, I think it really does a disservice in understanding what actually was going down throughout the Atlantic Ocean. It wasn't just 
point A to point B to point C and back to point A. I mean, it was crisscrossing right. <laughs> throughout the Atlantic. And, you know, we have to, we really do have to periodize um, certain instances in how we present the history. And there's, there's a book, um, I'm forgetting the title, but it's by Ira Berlin. I think it's called The Making of African America. Where I think he does this pretty well in that we, we really do have to start in Western Africa, I mean, from Senegal all the way down to modern Angola to really understand the societies that enslaved people are coming from and the disruption um, of their lives that the Middle Passage causes. And then how we then understand what occurs in the development of the slave societies and plantation societies throughout the Americas and what it is that causes the domestic slave trade, which will uproot at least over a million people um, from the Atlantic seaboard into what we know as the, the interior or cotton South and what was driving that type of expansion, American imperialism, staple crops, um, industrial revolution, and, and all of these things are intertwined. I think once students fully understand that they start to grasp why it is we still have to keep talking about slavery in the 21st century. I mean, wh what was it that it built within this country. And the fact that there's a lot of residue remaining to this day based on, from, from yeah. my studies, the, the domestic slave trade, land speculation, and expansion of slavery built a government that we still function under, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and there's uh, there are some pretty good books about that as to how you can actually predict the voting patterns even today based upon the the expansion of cotton and the settlement of of white plantation societies throughout that have dotted the south uh since the 1800s so yeah i mean it, there are both literal and symbolic impacts that, right. <laughs> that are directly connected to the expansion of slavery in the United States. And you could even argue the expansion of slavery in the Americas in general, um, because the U.S. was also not an isolated place. Right. There were conversations with Cuba and Brazil, the way that the U.S. interacted with Haiti after the revolution. Correct. And, and so, I mean, all of these things really help place the U.S. in a transnational perspective that I think students miss out on when we study just American history. Right, right, yeah. right. I understand. Now, so let's let's get to some of your writings. Considering you were, you received the Zora Neale Hurston Award from the American Folklore Society. Right. Yes. Just that. What? Let's let's talk about that. What was that paper about? Yeah. So I mean, the I think that's the article called "Married in Slavery Time: Jumping the Broom in Atlantic Perspective." And uh, in regards to the the Hurston Prize, I was looking for a society that I thought best reflected my approach in that article. Mm. And one of my commitments within that article, which is why I think the, the committee awarded the prize, is I was trying to showcase how historians can use folklore and methodologies from folklorists to unpack, perhaps you could say, an undisclosed history of a folk ritual like jumping the broom, which has deep historical value uh, within African-American history. And so that article was basically trying to trace 
I guess you could say a cultural genealogy mm-hmm. of jumping the broom as it existed among certain groups in the British Isles and how it translated into the enslaved community, specifically in the U.S. South. I mean, that that's the basis of it. And I was trying to find the degree to which I could link uh, different cultural practices to one another, because when dealing with folklore, you're as with any other source, you're relying upon an incomplete record. I mean, I don't have a source that says this was the date and time when, when jumping the broom came to the United States. Correct. I had to be somewhat creative and imaginative in looking at the possible ways in which it was transferred. Did it come from the master? Probably in some cases, but there's also some evidence that there was cultural interaction amongst what you might call disenfranchised poor whites in the South, as well as enslaved and free people of color as well. So I leave the possibility that the way in which jumping the broom becomes uh, within different enslaved communities throughout the South is through kind of a multifaceted process of cultural exchange. Understood. And I do agree that folklore is a good place to, if not verify, um, find great historical evidence. It, it, it is quite, I use this word a lot, especially as of late, because there's a lot convoluted in word of mouth oral tradition, Mm -hmm. but it is a great way to uh, investigate different cultural rituals, right? So now, what? so I guess this is a good way, a good segue to jump into the book, um, Jump in the Broom. And there are some Black or Pan-African or African scholars that claim Jumping the Broom started in Africa. So let's right. let's talk about the book and then go into your findings. Sure. So um, the book essentially is about a, a nine-chapter manuscript at this point. Um, and it is basically looking at the long history of Jumping the Broom. So it is a history book, but it also goes into more interdisciplinary concepts of African-American studies, where I'm looking at how the past is relevant to the present, um, how people reimagine certain cultural tools that are important to them. And so the book begins primarily within the British Isles and looking at these literal traditions of what you would call the marginalized peoples of that area. So I actually avoid calling Jumping the Broom British because the elites of Britain mocked the ceremony and they mocked the people that did it. Mm. So what what actually what I usually call it is that British communities in Britain are the, are responsible for the development and the and the transfer of the ritual across the Atlantic. So I look at um, people called the Romani Gypsies that have settled in Britain at some point in the 17th century or 16th century, and then I look at different rural Welsh communities that are that have a folklore tradition of the practice. Some Anglo-Saxon were also known to music and other Celtic groups as well. So what the basis of that initial chapter is suggesting that jumping the broom was always a matrimonial tradition that was associated with a marginalized group. So wherever it was practiced in the 18th or 19th centuries, it was typically done by people who 
were either ostracized from the broader community or lived in circumstances in which it was very difficult to procure a minister. Mm. So, you know, if you so, for instance, if you lived in a 19th century Welsh village and kind of the, the fringes of, of society, there was no large town next to you and you had an inclination to marry. You didn't want to wait for the possibility that a minister would would come to your town or your area within the next six months. So the broomstick wedding essentially functions as a way for people to coordinate their marriage and have the community sanctify it. And then with the expectation that when the, the minister comes to town, that you'll get married officially, so to speak. It didn't always work that way, but that was the, the basis of it. Okay, And so I, I take that idea and I provide an explanation as to why jumping the broom may have appeared as a useful tool for individuals who were legally barred from marriage. But I make pretty explicitly clear throughout the book that enslaved people who jump the broom are the most unique out of all of these groups because they are the only ones in which their marriages are just not legally recognized. Um, Because theoretically, other groups could have married uh, in churches or in front of a justice of the peace if they wanted to. But sometimes their circumstances made it more difficult for them to do so. So the basis of the book is it's a multicultural custom, which is what I what I'm basically arguing. But I am asserting that the black American experience is the most important piece of this analysis, because I I make an argument that without black Americans, without black people in the United States reviving the broomstick custom, we wouldn't know very much about it. If Alex Haley hadn't have written Roots and talked about jumping the broom and then if the miniseries hadn't have featured it we probably wouldn't be discussing jumping the broom as prominently as we do today. I mean, there, there are different cultural moments in which it is revived and then used by the descendant population. And so the book follows this very long history from the British Isles into slavery, into the postbellum life of African-Americans and how the broomstick custom resonates in different ways after after freedom is obtained. And then it jumps into looking at how Euro-American communities perpetuate the tradition to some degree um, throughout the United States, then goes into black power, um, black literature, Margaret Walker, Alex Haley, um, and different people publishing novels about slavery at that moment in like the 1970s, 1960s. And then But it's the 1990s, which frames kind of the the chapter that explains why it is that jumping the broom makes a comeback. Because it was formerly enslaved people did disassociate themselves from it, which we can talk about a little bit more if you'd like to. Uh, But then it gains this revival after uh, a certain amount of popular culture. And then in the 90s, there is basically this boom in what is called a heritage wedding, where people are trying to integrate ancestral customs into their modern wedding ceremonies. And for African-Americans who were searching for different pieces of their heritage, 
um, slavery was at least one reference point. And thanks to the work of Haley and others, jumping the broom became one of the most prominent rituals that became used in the 1990s. And then as a conclusive point, I, I trace how it seems that modern wedding practitioners are viewing the broomstick wedding as part of their own cultural identity and the reasons why some choose to reject it. Mm. And much of that has a lot to do with this idea that it's a slave custom. Right. Yeah. And so just to your point about African origins, one of my motivations for initially starting this research was just my own interest in uh, slave cultures. But I was curious if, if I could find any evidence of West African traditions of jumping the broom. And so when I start stumbling upon all of these references to its existence in the British Isles, I'm starting to wonder if this is something that is practiced amongst groups of Europeans and then transfers into the enslaved community. And by and large, at least from the perspective of the documentary record, that seems to be the case. There really is no African precedent um, about jumping over a broom. I do leave the possibility open in the book that there was at least this idea of crossing over that that does exist in different West African cultural practices, often called the Kalunga line, which is popular in West Central Africa and, and other parts. And so there is a possibility that enslaved people of African descent might have recognized some similarities between jumping over the broom and these other ideas of crossing over um, to enter a new state. But the actual literal practice of jumping over a broom seems to be thoroughly documented most in Western Europe, um, specifically the British Isles. And um, another point I should probably emphasize is we only see jumping the broom in the United States. Uh, if, if it was truly African, as I think a lot of people uh, are arguing, you would find it, I think, in societies that were more heavily Africanized, like Brazil or Cuba or Jamaica or Haiti. Uh, but you don't see it there. Uh, you only see it really in the United States. And the argument there is at least partially that within the U.S., the vast majority of enslaved people by at least the 1820s and 1830s were born in the United States right. and were more familiar with British European cultural traditions. And it would make a little more sense to visualize it that way as something that was introduced into the community and they adopted and then innovated and reimagined for themselves. So now you made mention to what triggered you to, to study this, but I want to, ask you why jumping the broom what about that made you say i have to figure this ritual or this tradition out because that's very specific yeah yeah no you're right that's a good question so i think the the shortest answer is that my wife and i jumped the broom at our own wedding oh wow okay <laughs> and um so but but the uh the minister who married us didn't know anything about it so he he wanted like some sort of short report just about it. So he could give the audience uh, some, 
I guess you could say speech about its relevance to the ceremony, where it comes from and whatnot. And so I guess I should say when I was getting married, I was finishing my last semester at UNLV as, to get my bachelor's. And so I was deeply invested in researching. I was writing a big paper at that point. So when he asked me to do this, I, I went a little overboard and I, I ended up submitting him like maybe a 15 page report. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, he, he's looking at me like with these like blank eyes, like I'm thinking more along the lines of like five sentences. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, well, what am I going to do with this material? This is really interesting stuff. And so I actually emailed the professor, Kevin Dawson, that I was working at. And I think I still have this email this way back in the day, in about 2008, 2009. And I said, I'm finding all this material about jumping the broom. Do you think there's anything here? And, you know, him being very supportive mentor said, yeah, I think I think you found something that not many people have written about yet. So depending on what you're able to find, you could you could do something bigger with this. Um, and once you get to grad school, you can talk to Professor Littlefield about you know, possibly pursuing this as a project. And so I I really started after that moment, 2009 or so, is when I started amassing a large amount of material. I was using the databases that were available to me as a, as a university student, and then later as a graduate student, now as a professor, just trying to comb through all of these different reports, all of these different sayings, all of these different sources that were speaking, at least to some degree, about the broomstick wedding in general. And I'll be honest with you, it hasn't been the easiest process convincing some of kind of maybe the older, more established historians that this is a viable topic of, of research. I've, I've had a few noteworthy names reject this as a, uh, a useful frame of analysis. So I think if, if any of your listeners are you know, aspiring academics, I guess the, the best advice I would give is don't listen to those people. <laughs> they, they know what they're talking about. Um, but because, and, and I think this is emphasizing what I said earlier, I think it's important that historians do take folklore seriously um, as, as a source base that, we, that can actually answer questions about some of these cultural tools that we otherwise have a very minimal understanding of. Because prior to me undertaking this research, one thing that really spurred my interest in writing a larger project was the vast majority of things that I read were jumping the broom was basically an appendage within the larger project. So if there was a book written about slave marriage, for instance, I said, okay, this might be the book where they talk more about jumping the broom. It might get maybe two paragraphs, maybe. And, and then a lot of the sources were, you know, people were just using the same sources, kind of just regurgitating certain things. Um, there was really only one article that was written about the broomstick wedding, but it wrote it from the perspective of, you know, slave owners, dominations of enslaved people and, you know, imposing different cultural rituals that were from from outside their cultural originally. So I, I started to wonder, I said, well, OK, so there's there's a few different things going on here. On the one hand, in in the popular sphere, people view jumping the broom as kind of this empowering cultural ritual of resistance in which enslaved people had no other choice. So they chose to jump the broom in defiance of of the slave owner. On the other hand, you have people saying, no, this was just a tool that the slave owner used to mock the enslaved people. They were doing it in this foolish way because they had taught themselves to be enslaved. They were enslaved mentally and, and this basic discourse. And so 
I kind of wanted to meet both in the middle. Right, <laughs> and right. So it, if, if you review all of the sources collectively, there really is no black or white argument, so to speak, in that jumping the broom is just as complicated as any other tool of cultural history, in that not all formerly enslaved people viewed it the same way. Not all enslaved people viewed it the same way. Uh, some people actually celebrated the ritual. Other people rejected it. And so I think that the one of the main interventions of this particular project is revising what we think we know about how enslaved people thought and how that legacy transfers after freedom you know, a hundred years and beyond. You know, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that's really interesting. And I'm at that point myself understanding that a lot of this is complex and compartmentalized of a bigger mm -hmm. whole. There's, there's not one. It's like recently I just had a conversation with a couple of friends uh, about um, this panel on, on revolt with with uh candace and killer mike and all these people oh yeah yeah right and and i've come to the conclusion that i almost say black people but for whatever reason i believe is everybody has this concept of of when everybody is in unison there's a utopia as it's just one Right. train of yeah. thought you know and I, I don't that's just not realistic now with that being said I really wanted to touch on what you said in regards to not just not listening to the elder academics, but more or less this, I don't want to say division, but the space in right. the academic industry, so to speak, where folklore is not received as history. However, folklorism is, right, is yeah. part of the academic industry. How does that work? Wow, uh, this is a good question. So, I mean, I think I can only really speak from my own experiences to, to how people have received this project. And I should emphasize that I think now that the product is done and that I've published some academic articles about it, people seem to be much more... Um, receptive to it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was one of those things where I felt like I had to prove it to people because I guess I should say that, you know, the people who <laughs> rejected this idea initially did so before they'd seen any tangible evidence mm -hmm. about it. You know, cause, and, and this came, and this is specifically coming from the time where I was in a graduate course and I wanted to write about this and the faculty member more or less rejected it because According to them, everything had already been said on it. Mm. You know, it, it was it was a folk custom. We don't know much about it. Uh, we just know that enslaved people did it. But there's there's not much else there. That was the basis of it. It was it was this assumption that because it had been referenced so many times that graduate student couldn't make an appropriate intervention. And so they encouraged me to write about what they called a more important topic, <laughs> along the, lines of the civil war or something. So, you know, I was trying to be, uh, you know, a good student. And I, so I wrote the paper on something else and it turned out fine, but that stuck with me because I think it gave me a chip on my shoulder to some degree. 
and really revealed to me that there is an underappreciation for the utility of folklore and the techniques of folklorists, which to me is ironic because one of, at least in my opinion, one of the best historians of the African-American experience, particularly in the 1980s and, and 90s, was Charles Joyner, who writes a book called Down by the Riverside, in which he, as a trained historian and folklorist, is using both techniques to uncover the unique cultures of people of African descent in the rice plantations of South Carolina. Right. And residual impact of that holds for understanding the cultures of the Gullah community within the South Carolina coastline and the issues that many of them are facing as land is being appropriated um, by you know commercial interests. Yeah, to this day. <laughs> yeah, oh no, yeah, to this day. And, and you know, the, he's writing about this, you know, 30 years ago almost, and, and we're seeing it it come across now. I just feel like you know, historians, we tend to go to archives. We tend, at least in the most part, we tend to study people whose voices are documented on a sheet of paper that we're reading. But I feel like the integration of some sort of technique of folklore and anthropology to some right, degree right. really helped me. Uh, understand that going out into communities and even just seeing the landscape was important. And so in, in my perspective, the best decision I think I ever could have made was to go to the University of South Carolina to, to, to study slavery, because hmm. just being in the space of where so much happened in regards to this history, that in and of itself, I think, is useful. Just just absorbing the land and the landscape and trying to find different ways to present the material to a broader audience. And so I, I, I don't know what the solution would be as far as getting historians to understand the utility of folklore. But I think to be a true cultural historian, you have to at least pay it some credit, um, especially when talking about the African-American experience where so much, so much is documented orally. And we're fortunate to have even the preserved documents that we have today. I agree. I couldn't have presented that more eloquently, but that leads me to my next question before we get into your other project. Mm -hmm. How much of the information you come across that you thought there could have been some sort of uh, issue with? Yeah, no, I mean, this is a great question. I think um, I mentioned that I really started collecting information for this project in 2009. And here we are in 2019 and the book's just barely been submitted. Wow. <laughs> so just 10 years. That, that might be reflective of the process under which scholars undertake in, in finding things that at least to some degree initially might contradict your assumptions about, about the ritual or about your topic. Right. And, and for me, I mean, there were there are always moments where I find something new and there are impressions to and think, well, do I have to revise my findings here? And ultimately, I think what I decided in regards to this project is that jumping the broom seems to lend itself to this type of complexity because the, the basis of my argument is that we can't understand anything one dimensionally. And with, without the use of folklore 
and the preservation of folk rituals. My analysis and many historians of enslavement in general would be relying upon the perspectives of white slave owners who wanted to ensure their narrative of the history was preserved. And for a number of decades after the Civil War, it was pretty successful in doing so. But with the recovery of black voices within this entire process, um, that has that has been the main catalyst for expanding our understanding of the complexity and the diversity of the African-American experience and how it really is embedded in even this transatlantic dialogue between different cultural groups. And so I don't know if that answers your question completely, but I think essentially I have found that the best books on perhaps slavery or the African diaspora in general are those that understand that the source base that might be inherently contradictory in which you are using sources from different peoples who have different agendas and different outcomes that they're expecting to occur. But for me, the most important component that I could include is that you have to champion the experiences of those that it most applies to. So if I'm talking about jumping the broom or even just slave marriage in general in the U.S. South, I am usually much more interested in what black people are saying about it in the contemporary framework than I am, you know, a slave owner's opinions upon the ritual. But one thing that occurs within this book is I do have a chapter that's dedicated to how elite whites viewed the broomstick custom and how slavery and enslavement and African-American identities were always a primary focal point within this entire conversation. Because amongst the white elites, so to speak, it does become a reference point for talking about cultural degradation, despite the fact that the original groups of people who practice it would themselves been called white. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it, one thing that makes this project particularly interesting is how jumping the broom starts to symbolize so many different things. Um, it can be a tool of empowerment or it can be a tool of degradation or it can just be something that people didn't really think much about because actually some of the most interesting sources that I could analyze are those who didn't really talk much about it. Hmm. And that, that silence I think is actually really interesting. Why didn't they elaborate? What prevented them from speaking a little bit more about it? Uh, was it just so ingrained in the culture that it was just something that they didn't think twice about? considering. So this project is looking at all of these various, sometimes contradictory feelings about the custom and suggesting that there's a history to be written about a folk custom that really does explain the broader contours of the entire society in general, both black and white. Well, so listeners understand you're not just getting information on the project. You just got a free course in how to research <laughs> and cross-reference things. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that was free consultation. <laughs> but that was great. Yeah. That was, I mean, that's that, really that, great. That one's for free. That one's for free. <laughs> exactly, that one. You know, but the irony of what you just shared is the fact that considering to your research, this tradition 
was created in the British Isles. Right. The same, not the same elite, but elite whites there felt the same way about their quote unquote peasants and those in servitude and this um, tradition as it was felt here by the elites. Correct? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 the intellectual genealogy that I was that I was tracking. Uh, the, I mean, of course, this will be an obvious point, but the main divergence is that in the British Isles, it's much more of a class basis, a little bit of ethnic um, distinction because a lot of people didn't view the Romani gypsies as you know British. They saw them as uh, kind of nomadic interlopers in the society, but it was it was largely viewed from a classist perspective, and of course in the United States because race and racial categories become a primary reference point, particularly by the late 18th and 19th centuries, it will, it will take on a racial classification uh, Mm. much more so than it ever did in the British Isles. So the intellectual tradition is the same in that a, degraded class was associated with the custom and rejected by the elites, but it becomes racial in the United States, whereas it was largely on a class basis in the British Isles. You've just listened to Jack Dapple Blues podcast with our featured guest, Dr. Tyler D. Perry, professor of African-American and African diaspora studies at UNLV, also book review editor of Black Perspectives. Tune in next week for part two of another wonderful interview with Dr. Perry that has to do with the blues people. Keep bluesing.